where I smile films presents the shot. And now here are your hosts, Matt and Jesse. So this shot episode, we thought we'd take a look at the Mount Rushmore of horror. And we put very little limitations on this. <laughs> we did this a couple months ago with uh, the Mount Rushmore of comedy, like actors and people that we thought were prominent figures in comedy. Now with horror, like you said, we're playing a little loose with it. So we're considering genre, director, actor, actress, mm-hmm. anything is a, a film, thing. a soul film, a soul film, yeah, a producer. Um, so it's obviously wildly personal. And this is the list tonight. We sat in here, just had a conversation and oh yeah, yeah, that so the list can change from can, time to time. Sure. Um, no stipulations on whether it was scary or life changing or metaphorically appropriate or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But a construct of four, sorry, five choices that you would erect your side of Mount Rushmore with these monuments of horror, classic, or otherwise. Love it. Let's get right into it. We're drinking mystery bourbon today. Whatever the hell's in this decanter, it's pretty good, though. <laughs> it's smoky, almost a little, like you said, like um, scotch. It tastes kind of scotchy, but it's it. there's no way it can be. Maybe this is a scotch bourbon Merlot. <laughs> it's a hybrid. Oof. All right, but it's good. Excellent. All right, let's go ahead, let's go ahead and get started. Let's start start at the top there for you. No particular order. Yeah, no no order, but I'm going to go with Rick Baker, number one. Obviously, with horror, the look of the bad thing is wildly important. When they choose to show it, there's an equally good argument to be made for what you don't see. But in the cases where it's shown, I think Rick Baker is about as talented as it comes in this avenue. I'm not going to go into the body of work because you all can look that. And we've talked about him at least a couple of times already on the show we haven't done his the film of his though no you know what we should do well we got to do american werewolf one of these days but for like the flight we should do like thriller and like break that down well that's a fantastic idea that'd be good i'm down okay yeah and it's I think the the guy's range. So it's a one-off if you want to do American Werewolf London and the design there. But looking at all of the special effects, it's everything from zombie to ghost to werewolf. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a range in there. And I think it speaks to just how wildly imaginative he is. Guys, understand that most of this material is not from an adapted source. There isn't a source material that they can look back at. I mean, sure, there's werewolves. But that werewolf and Michael Jackson's werewolf are two standalone wildly terrific looks right and the werewolves prior to werewolf in london were all bipedal lon cheney wolf men like this is an actual wolf like an actual wolf Mm -hmm. and the best part of that in any wolfman movie is watching man become wolf and then back because how does your body return to normal and the answer is i don't know (laughs) but that's that's the crowning moment in that film and or with that that character he handles that equally well, and I challenge you to all take a look at how many credits he has, which is special visual effects artist, consultant. I think there's a couple directorial pieces in there, too. He has some writing. He's even in a few films. Um, but mostly it has to do with the look of the monsters that he has blessed this genre with. So he is on my side of Mount Rushmore that's, as one of the choices. That's great. Uh, yeah, he... um. He won the Oscar for American Werewolf in London. That was the very first year of the best makeup special yeah. effect Oscar. 
Rightly, I, rightly deserved. I think there's a couple other ones in there too. As I was looking at, I think he's got a couple. Oh, he has a few. Nominated sure. many times. Uh, there's a great uh, behind the scenes picture of John Landis pushing Rick Baker in a in a wheelchair as like a quasi dolly with like he's holding like the werewolf head in the Piccadilly Circus sequence where he's like chomping at like the the heels and stuff. It's awesome. It's really cool. Awesome. <laughs> All right, my first one. Your first one. I, I tried to go back to like, you know, go through the decades kind of like I did with comedy and like early on and then kind of work my way up. Uh, and I found myself at the Universal Monsters. Of course I did. Mm-hmm. And if there's any sole per- per- person from that entire era that sticks out to me, it has to be Boris Karloff. I mean, Bela Lugosi passing on Frankenstein because, you know, the makeup wouldn't like jive with him might be the biggest career mistake ever made by an actor ever because... Karloff quickly surmounted, like, he was just listed in the credits as Karloff. They didn't even have his first name. He was that big. Yeah. So do Frankenstein, the mummy, mummy. the bride of Frankenstein, the black cat, uh, the raven, all this, all these films he did with Universal. I think he's Dracula at 1.2 in the House of Frankenstein. If I'm not mistaken, he plays the Count. Oh, yeah, I think he plays the mad scientist okay. in, in those, yeah, the, the team-up movies with those. But he, um, yeah, he continued on well into the 60s. And, man, I can't believe Peter Bogdanovich is coming up again. But in his directorial debut is a film called Targets. Yeah. And that's like... Karloff's like swan song and it's a great performance by him. Right. Had a great career. So coupled with Bela Lugosi who had the quite the opposite of that and ended up kind of really piss poor by the end, ending up in Ed Wood movies and plan nine from outer space and that whole saga. But to me, Karloff has a presence and he has such a unique bone structure that he looks kind of monstrous already, but when you think Frankenstein, you think of the Karloff makeup and just like how painful that was for him to sit through, to go through. But as a giant, as an acting pedestal on my Mount Rushmore for horror, I have to go Boris Karloff. How can you not? Gave some consideration to Lon Chaney, uh, the father, the man of a thousand faces. But I think Karloff has him has him has him beat. I mean, he Karloff did it from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and into the 60s. I think you set me up nicely here, so I'm going to kind of continue that run that you're on. Okay. So for going back to the universal bit and the importance of those characters setting forth what will become such a staple of our lives and in film, mm-hmm. you have to look at the the mad scientist, if you will, behind the construction of that universal franchise, and that's none other than Carl Lambley Jr. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to get the bit more backstory on that. We did a really nice chat uh, back in the Invisible Man episode that sort of breaks down how he came to that, but essentially it's gifted to him by his father. Mm -hmm. This man has, in the 30s, the foresight at a very young age, I believe under 20, to decide with some of his friends, like, this might be a fun endeavor. And that fun endeavor included adapting classic gothic fiction and turning these as-yet-untapped unmet, (laughs) unmeasured desires for monsters into what became macabre and franchisable and important with makeups and terrifying and promotional elements. And all of the things that horror grew up to be, I think was set forth. And we can argue Caligari and Nosferatu and all that other stuff. But as a franchise in a studio, Lamley Jr.'s role at Universal with these monsters is unprecedented, in my opinion, in the production ways of horror. Mm. If he doesn't come around as a flying uh, one-off just because him and his buddies think it'd be fun to do Frankenstein. Yeah. 
we're having a much different conversation today. Yeah, no, they took he took a chance on the profitability of these of these monsters. I mean, someone would have figured it out eventually, but he did really early on there, and I don't think they were gonna they were really aware of how successful it was really gonna be. I mean, it turned into to such a thing. I think you can see the marketing genius behind him too. At the beginning of Frankenstein, I forget what that actor's name is. But Edward, the, Edward Von Sloan. There you go. Yep. Shows up and gives the audience a gentle warning about maybe you might want to reconsider what you're about to watch, but if you don't, don't say we didn't warn you. That is the same shtick that Hitchcock is going to use with Psycho. Mm -hmm. That's the same shtick we're going to get with Blair Witch. Oh, yeah. That has been reheated and recycled much like the genre of horror in different ways recreated. And to be fair, most genres in some manner. That's him. He had to. Like, we'd have to probably get, like, the inside story. But he had to have had some type of say in, like, suggesting, oh, Bella's going to pass on this thing. Go talk to Karloff or Boris Karloff. See if he, he wants to do something like that. So he had to have a hand in the casting of the, of the thing. Finding James Whale. Like, you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Right. Like, big decisions like that. Todd Browning. <laughs> finding Claude Rains. <laughs> finding Claude Rains. And then or, no, or not finding him. Because not putting in, him in a movie. Because he's invisible. <laughs> that's right. Todd Browning. Yeah, of course, with, with, with Freak. So that's not a universal production, but maybe it should have been, and it would have had more restraint, but that's a story for a different day. Carl Emley Jr., number two. That's great. What do you got? Kind of sticking in the same area, we're going to bump up to the 1940s, I believe, 1942, and another producer of sorts. But producing things not necessarily... RKO was a biggish studio of sorts. But the films that they threw the way of Bell Luton, or the films he was trying to get off the ground, were The Body Snatcher, uh, uh, The Ghost Ship, mm -hmm. and the film I'm going to talk about that I think is very important for horror going forward, and that's Cat People. Now, here's a very simple premise for a film that here's this woman who's been cursed with this like this gypsy cat curse or like whatever it is and if she ever so ever gets sexually aroused in any way she yeah. turns into a cat <laughs> now in 1942 i mean they were doing okay making makeup with frankenstein but how are you going to show this woman transform into a cat and then be this cat womp cat woman mm -hmm. on the on the silver screen it's impossible without it being laughably bad so this low-budget horror film has to go about alternative ways to make you scared. There's the 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 bus sequence that it emanates a growling cat, or the the awesome pool sequence that just showcases things in shadow, sound, shadow, cinematography, acting. It all comes together to make you afraid of what you're not seeing in the shadows, and that's absolutely genius. That leads into films like. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween, when you don't have money, how the hell are you going to scare the audience? To the Paranormal Activity, Blair Witch Project. I mean, all films that aren't, you know, upfront with their scares rely on this method. And I think it stems from cat people. Matt, in college, I wrote a hell of a, maybe the best collegiate paper I wrote on cat people. It was sexy. It was, it was, it was it was twisted and it was kind of just taking all these ideas and these concepts kind of wrapping it into like some type of like psychological breakdown of the film like cat people's phenomenal we we'll cover it one of these days but for an, and it's an hour and like 10 minutes it's like it's so short so short yeah and you never really get the full gist of it but the idea that you arouse this woman and what she becomes essentially kills you is really troubling <clears throat> and if you think about it that's the inspiration for it's not a terrific movie, but Teeth, and it follows oh, and yeah. some of that more little, more contemporary versions of that. That I saw that movie in college as well. Mm -hmm. 
a uh, guy that is really important to me that we've mentioned before and is equally important to you because his GA became, or his TA became your guy. <laughs> yeah. His name was Gus Blaisdell. And the class I took was just, it was just called horror. What would you call that genre? Sex horror? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Sexual horror. And you know what he followed up that the next week with? Mm. Altered States. Oh. And then you know what he followed up the next week with? I don't love that film. I don't either. It's William Hurt. It is <laughs> troubling. <laughs> movie called Sweet Movie which to this day mm. is the only movie that I've ever left. Really? By, for uncomfort, not because it, like I walked out of Step Brothers because I thought it was atrocious. You also walked out of Jason Bourne because it was trash. Right. <laughs> but just because it was so off-putting. I've never seen that. Oh, man. E. Dusan Machiavea. If, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, God. Yeah. Mm. I, Montenegro looks like a Disney film compared oh, to this. Oh, okay. All it right. is rough. All righty. And we were in a little sort of, I don't know if it was body dysmorphia or whatever, but anyway, that movie also, he warned us, like, you're not really going to see it. You just need to let it happen. And it's a slow burn. And I left a little troubled that night. It, it There is an element of fear in that film. Interesting. But like yeah. you said, made for pennies and very little. Mm -hmm. I love cat people. That's mm. a great choice. Kind of film noir-y too. A little bit. Yeah. Van uh, Patel. Yep. Excellent. All right. Up to number three now. Barbara Steele. I love that choice. Black uh, Sunday. Sunday. Yep. My first introduction to Barbara Steele was the pit and the pendulum. And that's a post story. Obviously she's not in it for very long, but she had such a unique sinister look to her. It's that widow's peak. It's that fine vampiric effect. That's just her natural coloring. Mm -hmm. It's the devilish way she torments Vincent price in that film. And Watching that movie, I knew that it was cheap. And I think it was Sunday after Saturday afternoon or something along one of those like mid seventies to early, probably not mid seventies, late seventies to mid eighties kind of Sunday afternoons or Saturday afternoons. I fell in love with her. That's not her best work, but shortly thereafter. So that's 1960. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That's 61. Shortly there before 1960, she does black Sunday. Uh, <laughs> And that's where most of her really exceptional stuff is going to be done in that Italian mm -hmm. vein, um, more Bava yeah. than Argento, mostly mm -hmm. Bava. Some other ones that aren't as recognized, but like not Argento, but Bava. That movie's about a witch. And here's what's the best thing about Barbara Steele. Interviews with her are so much fun because she <laughs> doubled down on, yeah, they cast me early on in my career as this blonde, they dyed my hair. I left and went back to London and found some real movies that I wanted to make. Cause I was into incest and all of the macabre and just in that space, oh, that's awesome. playing the part all the time. And she has the look mm -hmm. exotically, horrifically beautiful. Have you ever seen, uh, I don't know when she passed, uh, but she, uh, 12, I think it was 12. This is way before this is the eighties, but like kind of past her prime. She's in a slasher film called The Silent Scream, where she's playing like almost like a Betty Davis, like kind of washed up actress. It's just a pretty decent little slasher film. Um, yes, I actually have seen that. Yeah. Courtesy of Gus on a recommendation <laughs> as well. Nice. She um she had this really interesting description of herself in film, and she said, I was this temptress bitch who was into incest and the macabre and I played it to the hilt as sexily as I could. Mm -hmm. And she delivers. There's a lot of women that are important in horror. It's such yep. an important role in horror. It doesn't happen without them. Mm -hmm. She's kind of the, the foremother 
to all of them. She's great. I'm glad you're including her. Your third choice. My third, he's all over this room. You knew I had to include him. It's John Carpenter. We've covered Halloween, Escape from New York, and Assault on Precinct 13 on Rice Mile films. And, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 is kind of a a bit of a horror film, too, if Mm -hmm. you kind of look at it. So Halloween, The Fog, The Thing, um, Christine, They Live, In the Mouth of Madness. I mean, Vampires with James Woods. But it's everything we've kind of discussed in those episodes. It's the craft behind it all, the low-budget mentality. I'm going to direct this. I'm going to write it. I'm going to score it. I'm going to make you feel the settings in these films. And we're kind of saving the best one for some some other point down the road, but like it all comes to a head in the thing. And that's like such a masterfully put-together film. Um, by, and almost kind of like a, a, a passion project of him, like being such a Howard Hawks fan to be able to take the thing and do something totally unique with it. I mean, the, the, the guys on point and, and he, and he washed up like after in the mouth of madness, like this is like 95, everything else is kind of crap. I'm not, I don't love escape from LA. I don't like vampires. I hate ghosts of Mars. And then he kind of found his kind of niche, like producing video games and then writing music. And I kind of like that. He's back in the writing music space with the new Halloween. Like he's really good at that, but one of the cool things about Carl, like his films, like other than Halloween, like the rest of the stuff kind of, they weren't hits back then, but now they're so appreciated now by such a loyal kind of cult audience. It's like Carpenter got cool way after the fact, way after he stopped making movies. So it's a shame that they couldn't like big Trouble little chance. It's a shame that movie couldn't be a hit in its time, but for what he did for, for horror, I mean, with Halloween, like you said, we blew off the doors off a whole new subgenre that was going to be milked to death. <laughs> I can't say anything better than what you said about him. And I know that there is a divine place that he holds in your pantheon of all time, the Hall of Famers. So I'm not going to take anything away from that. I just have to say he managed to do with horror what entertainment did for all of us in film. And by that, I mean, you can make really off-putting horror mm-hmm. and just make it so horrifying that nobody can handle it. And people had done that prior to Hollywood with films long before. They just weren't any good. He found a way to make it still creepy, but entertainingly creepy. And look, Halloween is talked about mm-hmm. a lot, yeah. rightly so. That movie is so fun to watch. Yeah. And like... We can bang on some of the later stuff if you want, but you're never going to be, I think (laughs) Mission to Mars or whatever is is atrocious, right? Ghost of Mars. Ghost of Mars or whatever that is is atrocious. Mm -hmm. But it's not because it's not that you can tell the guy, I think, enjoyed doing what he was doing. My favorite part about him too is I feel like he's, he was a big budget filmmaker with like $1 million, if that, and like his ideas were so grandiose or he made them look big. A lot of that cinematography, but. I just you, you when you watch a Carpenter film, you know you're watching one of his movies. It has like this look. That's all we need to say right now. <laughs> we'll save the rest for the thing <laughs> for later, right? What am I up to? Number three, number four. four. Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee. I can't believe I forgot him. Well, there's so many good choices. I'm a big like. I know it's not for everybody, but like Hammer Horror has its oh, own yeah. special kind of niche. I I love that stuff. Rasputin, the Mad Monk, like he played so many of those characters. Dracula, Mummy, all of them. 
that hammer horror run that he had that basically kept what was the classic stick of of universal's monster still going is basically because of him Mm -hmm. he's a great dracula he's great in many other things but he's really fantastic with minimal money in a studio that was trying to remain competitive in an otherwise dead market Mm -hmm. he kept that thing alive he kept the undead breathing sure there's so many great stills of Christopher Lee. The movies are whatever they feel like from the 1970s and 60s, and they try and sometimes get there and sometimes don't. Mm-hmm. But a book of stills of Christopher Lee as horrifying elements, everything that Bella Lugosi tried to do with mm. his eyes, yeah. Christopher Lee did, I think, so much more capably and naturally. Yeah. Right? Sort of fine in a very handsome way and Eastern European, even though he isn't, um, he just works. A tall guy too. He was like very six, six. tall, which plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, I'm not going to talk about the body work cause everybody can look into it, but it's, it's impressive mostly at that time mm-hmm. with B list sort of cinema though. Oh yeah. It's, oh, that's not that's totally what hammer was. You got to love that. Mm-hmm. We like our cheap, I well love- done horror be listy, don't it's we? my favorite stuff. Yeah, sure. My favorite Christopher Lee story, not to go back uh, to Carpenter, but they wanted him for Loomis and they wanted Peter Cushing, who was like hot off of Star Wars. And they were like, nah, pass. So they went with Pleasance. And then years later, they ran into him at some function and he went up to Deborah Hill and Carpenter and says, that was the biggest mistake I made in my career, not being in that movie. Like he wanted to be a part of it. So... No, a great screen presence that, that that you have there. So yeah, Barbara Steele and uh, Christopher Lee. Yeah, I'm gonna Christmas. I'm gonna switch to literature for this next one. Okay. You might think I'm going Stephen King now. If I could do Stephen King like until '92, hell yeah, I would. <laughs> or a soul book like a Salem's Lot came close to like just as a book making it on this list. But I have to go with some. He gets talked about a lot, and everyone they make his movies, and people love his movies, or they hate them, or whatever. I don't think we talk about Dean Koontz enough. Kind of literally writing the books at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now I know that might be to the chagrin of some of the listeners saying, like, of course King's better, and I'm not going to disagree with you. But to me, Koontz writes a more. He gets out of that fantasy bullshit that like hampers a lot of King's work for me. And it's, it's realistic. It's there's stuff with clairvoyance, but it's usually just like these like killers, like hunting these people. And he writes it so tensely in particular, I got a single out one book and it's a book called Mr. Murder. And it was adapted for like a shitty made for TV movie on ABC with like Thomas Hayden church. And it's awful. When I was reading that book and just to kind of give you a, a summary, it's about this family man has a couple daughters and a wife living his living I think he's an author too and one day like he doesn't know he has like a twin out there or this doppelganger who's like a bad dude and while he's away at work this guy like literally supplants himself into this man's life and no one they can't like really tell that it's not daddy or it's husband and this guy just starts to like mess with them and then it becomes like this cat and mouse chase like across like the state and it's it was like the only time I've ever read a book and I, I was literally having a panic attack while reading it. Like the tension wow. was at an 11. Wow. And I hate that they can't adapt any of his works into usable films. They're usually garbage. 
And I, I've stayed away from a lot of that odd Thomas stuff, but the guy knows how to write some really great suspense. And it, it doesn't get like too too crazy. Like I said with Stephen King and we got like like space turtles and like whatever bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. they're fun reads. Um some of them better than others, but that one in particular I have to single out because it's one of the few books that I, I like I had to put it down for a little bit because it was making that invasion of privacy really bothers me. Mm-hmm. And that's like that book to an eleven. Strange why they can't seem to find an adequate director or writer for his stuff. It's such a formidable opposition to King that had it gone to the silver screen might've made King produce a little bit better work too. King benefits from the first thing they adapt from him is Carrie. Brian De Palma. It's it's a masterpiece. It's a really well-made film. And then the first thing they make of his is I think demon seed with Julie Christie. That movie's about this demonic computer. And like that movie's terrible. It's awful. So you're getting off on the wrong foot already. (laughs) Hmm. All right, good. I like that. I have a ton of his books right, right I'm there. Looking that at him, there's a good six or seven right there. Mm-hmm. Cool. What's the last thing of his you read? Uh, the last thing I read was that book there called Whispers, and that's about uh, let me see if I can remember because it's just been a while. I think it's 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 about an actress who um is stalked by this guy and they kill him and then she kind of gets into this thing with like the cop but then the guy's not dead and he like comes back and like he's like he's like after her but it's like he's it's the sneaking into the house elements that just totally bother me kill you yeah because that stuff could happen you know what i mean so we should watch funny games this weekend yeah let's watch funny games Mm. like like pennywise the clown like get out of here that's like this space clown isn't gonna like really be alive but like some freak could like like crawl into your window and like just be there and you wouldn't even know yes. Dude, i'm always che- i'm some always freak no, I'm, that? Yeah. some freak yeah he would be a freak yeah you know it i love it it's awesome <laughs> all right good no, number five is this the last one number five all righty uh from the previously mentioned pit in the pendulum and thriller vincent price I don't think a lot of people are going to say that's a mastery of acting. You're making a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. He just got cast in a role that he couldn't get out of, and he chose to double down on it and did it really well. Look, he's got an amazing set of pipes, mm-hmm. so that's one thing. And his look matches his voice, but his manner doesn't match either. Pit and the Pendulum, Mask of the Red Death, The Tingler, um, The Raven, Dr. Fibes, all of them, House of Wax. Uh, Say House, Usher, on, House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill. You keep going mm-hmm. and going and going. Vincent Price had a presence in his performances that was bigger than the screen. And there's actually a little bit of a run from him with film noir that's, I think, worth at least mm. mentioning. And not Laura, but he's in Laura, too. I think that he had the ability to take a stage, formal stage play presence and somehow weave that into his ability to portray these very macabre characters. And if you think about horror and how it's delivered from Bela Lugosi to, bad example, and not exactly horror, but... Johnny Depp in any semi-horrific role he's played, it is by nature a little melodramatic, is it not? Oh, yeah. He had a way through his presence of taking that melodrama, somehow mixing it with the tone of the film that he was making, which is usually formal, 
noble kind of person, downplaying it into an everyman way, and then somehow elevating it again with this amazing voice that just left you watching him on the scene that he was in, wanting more and more and more. And no matter what movie he's in, Mm -hmm. when he shows up on stage or screen, he steals the moment. Please go watch The Pit and the Pendulum. Go see Barbara Steele at one of her finest moments. She's not in it for very long, but she's in it. And watch Vincent Price play The Descent into Madness. It is a masterpiece. I just, I've always admired him. He's great. You remember, and then, and then, you know, and right for like, we only parody like stuff that's good that, you know what I mean? When Bill Hader's uh, Vincent Price on oh, yeah. Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. For spooks and giggles. <laughs> yeah, right. No, legendary. Uh, He's actually, you mentioned Johnny Depp. He plays uh, the dentist guy in uh, Edward Scissorhands. Scissorhand. Right. So such a well-versed career. And yeah, thriller. Like thriller ends with this like monologue by Vince, this theatrical monologue by Vincent Price and the end of it's laughter. Like it's so good. Right, that's him to the letter though. Mm-hmm. How do you take a white guy and have him overlay a rap and a funk song? It's, about the the brilliance of horror films. Isn't Thriller just like the culmination of like horror greatness? I mean, you got John yes. Landis at the height of his powers before his before Twilight Zone and that whole debacle. Yeah. Rick Baker and his makeup, Michael Jackson at the height of his powers, and Vincent Price like and then you do a music video that's essentially a short film. That's amazing. That had never been done before oh, like that, that. That's just like, man, the planet's lining up. Game changing. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I mean it's a bit of a shame that that's how he's remembered a lot because it's worth just, if you don't want to watch the pit and the pendulum, go watch house of usher or mask of the red death. He is so good. Conqueror worms actually pretty good too, for that matter. Just go watch him in any of that. And just, just enjoy the craft that the man is delivering. Yeah, he's great. He is so good at crazy, mm-hmm. but like subtly crazy. That's awesome. So there you go. There's my five. Whoo, man, that's a great five. Again, yeah, the like the list should be of yourself. If you have the same list as me, that's that's a little weird. <laughs> it's a little strange. We did have a couple matchers that we had to change though. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm cheating on the last one as I typically do, but I'm going acting again, and I had to go with some horror powerhouses, but mainly because how they've affected how I view the genre. Uh, one being Bruce Campbell from the Evil Dead franchise, and the other being the Scream Queen, and that's Jamie Lee Curtis. And you look at Curtis's crest, you have Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween H2O, New Halloween, The Fog, Prom Night, Road Games, and Terror Train. Uh, this is a pretty good list. I can I can see why she got burnt out on it like right away and wanted to do like some fish called Wandenless Trading Places legitimate movies, but I like that she's come back around to it. And on one of the Halloween Blu-rays, the multiple ones I own, there's a great documentary on there called The Night She Came Home, and it's actually her first time at the convention circuit. Mm. It's awesome. She's like, she's so cool with all the fans that have been waiting years for her to like to see her at, at one of these things. That's great. She's a legend. Like at, 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 of all those roles, like you said, you just recently watched Prom Night. I did. Look, here's the thing that Jamie Lee Curtis did so well, Jesse, is she takes Hollywood royalty mm-hmm. and lets its present delve into the oh, no way you made that kind of movie horror. Mm-hmm. Like Tony Curtis and Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter, Janet Lee. Sorry, yeah. Janet Lee. Yeah. Sorry, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee's daughter. Hollywood royalty, like the daughter of all timers, right? Mm-hmm. 
certainly the ties to Psycho cannot be missed with her and her mom, Janet Lee, right? Obviously there's that. But it lent, I think, a credible a credibility to those films that was necessary. Mm-hmm. Um I think Halloween's still a good movie if she's not in it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's given the chance that it was given because she was in it. That's good. Pleasance is important. But that featured her, and she looked like the babysitter that was kind of the girl next door, but a little bit smarter and a little bit more attractive, but a little bit more motherly. She just brought a presence to that role. Like, and for what you said, from the, the circuit, right? Yeah. People love her. Yeah. I would love to sit down and oh, have a cup of coffee with Jamie Lee Curtis that'd today. Be so awesome. Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so many things I'd want to talk about. Talk about the, fo- like, when she talks about the fog, too, I love it. I just like the honesty. She just, <laughs> just says, yeah, it was okay. It wasn't the best. It's like, yeah, that's exactly what that movie is. Um, and think of it. She's gotten the chance to play Laurie Strode three different ways as an adolescent. Um, as a teacher mm-hmm. with the child, mm-hmm. and then as this uh, post-traumatic grandma. grandma. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, like who gets the opportunity to play your, your character three different ways? Like that's pretty cool too. And each one of those iterations is very different than the others. Mm-hmm. Stylistically, um, character-wise, yeah, those are three different Halloween movies. What a franchise. Um, and then Bruce Campbell, leading man. Like the, the man has, there's a reason his biopic is called If Chins Could Kill, because the man's just got mm-hmm. the square Hollywood jaw that they look for. And that man was like a roll or two away from being like big time, like Clooney. Like like he could he could have been it. And the film was The Phantom with Billy Zane. It was down to the two of them, and he missed it. Well, Billy Zane didn't do much with the Phantom either. Yeah, but yeah, I know. Yeah, his presence on screen, his willingness to go the extra length with the physical comedy and just have Sam Raimi abuse him at nauseum through those Evil Dead films. He's a joy to watch. He's funny. He's got a great presence. His one-liners, and I mainly just associate him with like those 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 four. Evil Dead 1, 2, Army of Darkness, and then the TV show, which was pretty fun, too. It's fun. I got a chance to meet him one time, too, and he's pretty cool. I have his autograph. So That's cool. Uh, yeah, it's, and I found Evil Dead stuff at, like, the perfect time in my adolescence. It was, like, freshman in high school, and I was just like, I got I to gotta check the rest of this stuff out. So those are the big powerhouses I have. But let's list some honorable mentions because we, <laughs> we left a lot on the table Boy, didn't we? to talk about. Um, let's go one by one by one. Sure. I'm going to take Sam Raimi. You just mentioned him. There's a big contribution that he has in horror and I think delivers it stylistically in a different way than certainly Carpenter does, but, and maybe not quite as famously or capably, Mm -hmm. but still going pretty strong. Um, and still very, very active if he wanted to be where Carpenter said, I'm just kind of out of ideas. I'm out. Get me out of here. <laughs> Sam Raimi was like, no, I got plenty more ideas. Just got to give me a contract. You know what's cool? Oh, well, so obviously Spider-Man, he got that sure. thing off the ground. If you've ever watched that movie, he did the Oz, the Great and Powerful with James Franco. That movie is Army of Darkness. It is. It's the same beats. The same things happen. And like, no one knew it when it came out. When I was watching it, I was like, I've seen this. This is Army of Darkness. Yeah. Are you right. excited to see his Doctor Strange whenever? Is that 
Into the multiverse of madness? Why not? That could be fun. From him? That's perfect. That's a perfect space for him. Mm-hmm. Give me an honorable mention, Jesse. David Cronenberg. You know I love body horror. You do. i um, been mulling over a Cronenberg cask and like what to, what to do in that. Like That's just a fun space to kind of play in. Rabid, Scanners, The Fly, um, I almost said body double. Wrong director. Uh, Dead Ringers, Jer- Jeremy Irons. Like, but then, like you, I, I'm like, once he starts doing History of Violence and all that stuff, like, I tune out, like, big mm-hmm. time. Yep. Maybe we hate that movie more for other reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm going to give you two screenwriters next. Okay. Richard Matheson mm-hmm. and Dardano Sacchetti. Richard Matheson, oh, had like a 25, 30-year run, a lot of post stuff in there. I'm sorry. No, okay. that's, um, yeah. Did really, really well with a lot of that. Um, had some collaborations with Vincent Price in there. The Dardano Scassetti did with Bava and Argento and like four or five other Italian dudes that I think Fulci might've had a little bit of a run with him in there as well. Um, I think Matheson is probably the most widely recognized consistent horror writer. There are people that'll do a one-off here or there, but Matheson showed up again and again and again and delivered and delivered and delivered even in B movie sort of fodder. Mm -hmm. It's never because of the script. It's just because of budget. The guy just was able to deliver. He understood that concept really well. Like in my wildest dreams, Vincent Price gets to play a monster crafted by Rick Baker in a script written by Richard Matheson. (laughs) There you go. That sounds good. That should have been the fly. Vincent Price did do the fly, but that should have been the fly. Mm, good. That's awesome. All right. I'll throw some genres your way. I thought about just a genre on my Mount Rushmore, Giallo, but thinking of Bava mm-hmm. and Argento. It's just like the precursor to, to Slasher, and they were so colorful, and they had the fashion and the fedora-wearing killer and his black glove, and they were gruesome and pretty, pr- pretty shallow after that. But they're a lot of fun. There's so many of them. Found footage. Paranormal, Blair Witch, Wreck, like th- that's a genre that allowed for so many countless imitators and ripoffs, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, important as well. Slasher, not everyone's favorite. I love them. I think they're a great deal of fun. Uh, but like I said with Halloween, opened the door for it and then they exhausted it to death. Yeah. And then uh, a studio. And this is kind of maybe a controversial decision, but but Blumhouse and everyone's gonna be like, oh, Jesse, like half of Blumhouse's stuff is shit. I'm not gonna disagree with you. 75% of it is probably shit. But for the winners in there, Get Out, Paranormal Activity, Insidious, Sinister, um, the new Halloween, like for every winner, there's four crap ones, but even like for the shit, like that's a studio taking a chance on high concept bankable ideas uh, with male and female screenwriters and directors uh, uh, people of, of different ethnicities, like horror is such a place where you can take chances on original content. And I know that's something very sacred to us, Matt. So that's a studio that's doing it over and over and over again. And the results might not always be awesome, but uh, there's gotta be something there. I mean, that's like a, a studio that's constantly churning out horror. I'm going to give you two more and then I'll be done. I'm going to give you James Wan. I think he really has a good grip on horror. It's a little bit more commercial, but I think he's really quite good at it. And I don't know if he quite deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore Hall of Fame, but he's he's 
building a legacy there that is noteworthy. What's the scariest movie? Aquaman? You. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one, this is way too early and we'll see what happens. But a couple more films, Jesse, and I think Ari Oster's in this discussion. We'll see what happens with St. Maud. Um, I want a couple more from him. I want a couple more from Jordan Peele before I can give them like real yeah. serious consideration. But like they're there. They're yeah. like close. Close. Mm-hmm. If St. Maud delivers like Midsummer and Hereditary did, which and I don't know when that's going to be released now because it was coming and then obviously who knows. That's those movies are scary. Yeah. <laughs> if that and that's a different kind of scary. That one won't really trouble you with the home invasion sort of thing because that's identity and mm-hmm. what your job is and who's in there and yeah. Um, I'm hopeful. I, think I know there's I, some potential with that. Yeah, oh, I can't. I can't wait. I know I mentioned Stephen King just kind of off the cuff there. Any consideration to another favorite in the genre, Clive Barker? Mm, no. Yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> no, me too. Like his stuff is an acquired taste for sure. But like, I don't love Hellraiser and that's kind of like his thing. Uh, yeah. Midnight Meat Train. Eh. Yeah. The, his books of blood had some okay stuff in it, but like, eh, it was like not enough to like really justify like a place on the Mount Rushmore. I think Pinhead started off. Okay. And that got to be just fucking absurd by the time it was done. That, <laughs> the Hellraiser franchise just absurd became a family is, and just whatever. Fucking absurds. Like that's like saying it nicely. Yeah. I actually watched some of the sequels as of late. Oh, they're unwatchable. Like you have to turn them off. Like the movie you were mentioning earlier. Okay. Funny story about that real quick. Can I tell you (laughs) the first time we saw Hellraiser, my dad took me and my little brother to see us at the movie theater. Oh my God. And he liked it. Really? (laughs) And he became kind of a Hellraiser fan. And I think he burned all the way through four. And two of those were without me and my little brother. Yikes. We did one and two. And then he kept going to three and four. And we kept asking dad, why do you do that? And he'd like, Never quite came out and admitted, but who doesn't like a series that sees four films in there, Jesse? He I, liked Hellraiser, my th- dad. After three, they were all straight to vi- video. Yeah. Like the, they were, the quality just dips so bad. We went to Video Visions and rented videos one night, and he fished out Hellraiser 4. And me and my brother both looked at him like, what in the hell? Oh my gosh, and, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> my dad, I think, was a closet horror fan. That's funny. Had a whole take on The Omen and. The Exorcist actually had both of those books. That's awesome. He was, yeah, never with us though. One more. We yeah. mentioned him a lot, covered a couple of his films, and you've met the man, mm-hmm. uh, met, met RIP. Any consideration to Wes Craven? Absolutely. There's a raging debate, which I had fun reading, which is Carpenter versus Craven, right? Yeah, Have you ever read that? Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly, it's really close. I mean, yeah, carpet or Craven just has those pockets in between the good stuff that are just like, oh my god, like Swamp Thing and Deadly Friend, Deadly Blessing. I just like I can't do those, but like Nightmare, Hills Have Eyes, Last House, Scream, Scream. that's good stuff. So yeah, he's certainly. What about okay? I have one more for you. Okay, what about Lynch, David Lynch? Yeah. Oh yeah. I thought about it. I thought about putting just Twin Peaks like as like, but that's like not like horror, but like it's, there's certainly stuff in there that's horrifying, but. Do you think Mulholland Drive is horror? Because I, I think that's horror. I think so. I think Eraserhead's horror. Yeah. I, I think uh, probably um, oh shit, like Blue Velvet's Blue kind Velvet. of horror. Uh, that's sex horror. That's what Blazer should have finished ex- after. That's exactly people. what that is. Yep. I, I gave to some consideration to Lynch. I mean, that's a certainly. I like acquired tastes in film. Like, like you're not going to get it on the first viewing, and it may trouble you 
But if you're willing to jump back in and get another helping, like that's fun. <laughs> that's exactly what David Lynch is. Yeah. First thing I ever saw was Eraserhead, and I'm like, well, I took a cult film class and we watched Freaks and we followed that up with Eraserhead, and the class was losing their damn minds. And I was like, I'll watch another Lynch film. Two weeks in, you're allowed to add drops to that class. Huh? <laughs> you were still allowed to drop the class. The class thinned <laughs> out considerably. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> then after that they they coupled that with the John Waters stuff and Pink Flamingos and if you've never seen Pink Flamingos, um, that that's another acquired taste. But that's the beauty of film. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a little bit in there for everybody, and there's some stuff in there that's I like. I like to be challenged. I mean, I we, you and I have seen enough films where we kind of get it. I like every once in a while to see something that kind of rocks you, rocks me, challenges me in a different way, and I have to follow it up with something so i'm sure i love your mount rushmore yours too i'd go uh take a visit to that and marvel at those statues and um yeah you're yeah vincent price with barbara or vincent what was it vincent price with rick baker makeup directed by written by richard Matheson. written by richard yeah Matheson. that sounds great i want to see that let's do that yeah, there you go <laughs> in 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 heaven if it, it, it if you believe in that like there's got to be a video store there where you just like conjure that and then it's there on the shelf and they still have video stores in heaven. <laughs> and when, when we see that movie, we have to take Barbara Steele in attendance with us because she will be yeah quite the knowledgeable aficionado of the macabre as we'd sit there. That'd be so cool. Excellent. Uh, yeah, this has been the shot. Uh, 45 minutes, that's usually the, the runtime for normal podcast episodes, but that's what we do on a Minnesota. So <laughs> that's right. Until next time, uh, have a good day, and we'll see you later. See you all.